It's my prayer that as you've come out of this Advent season, this Christmas season, that every year we help you and you're doing things to turn your heart and your mind more towards Jesus in this season. It's my prayer that we, every year we do small things. We do little things that uh, turn our hearts and minds towards Jesus during the season, whether it's an Advent reading every day uh, of the week leading up to Christmas or whether it's a special, special devotional uh, during family time. Maybe it's the starting off small and just reading the Christmas story. Um, not, not a creature was stirring Christmas story, but the Jesus Christmas story from Luke 2 um, or one of the Gospels. And I hope that every year you add something uh, small, something uh, small that will seem va- that will be vastly important, that you might not see the results of for a long time. Every year you add something small so that you can turn your attention and your heart more towards Jesus during His season. But also that it would give you a head start in turning your heart and mind towards Jesus for the new year. Um, we should not look at the Christmas season as a time uh, to relax, but a time to prepare. That is, that's what Advent, that's what the celebration of Advent is all about. It's preparing for the coming of the Son. That's the first Advent. But also, as I was thinking about Advent and, and what we could do today, and initially what I was going to do is I was going to start back in Exodus, and uh, Jason Hardridge was going to come and preach uh, next week for us and give t- some testimony about uh, his ministry. He's unable to do that. So we're, this service is still going to be great. It's going to be leading up um, to the new year, and then we'll start Exodus next week. Um, but what I was thinking about as I was thinking about the first Advent is that it really does something more than just um, draw our mind to Jesus. The celebration of the first Advent, it really changed the course of history. We, we celebrate it because it changed the course of history. It was a moment, it was at the moment of Jesus' birth where God instituted his plan for reconciliation of the world. A plan that he wrote before the beginning of time and just at the right time he sent Jesus to, to institute that plan. The first advent of Jesus brought eternal salvation into the world and for that we're forever grateful. So we celebrate that. We want to focus on that. We want to pay attention to that, you know, not just for four weeks out of the year, but really every week out of the year, every day out of the year, every hour of every day, every minute of every hour, if, if we can, and by God's grace we can. But, but it also did something else, more so than just bring in uh, the eternal salvation of mankind, which you can't really ask for much more. The first advent of Jesus really marked the beginning of the end of the world. Dun, dun, dun. I know that sounds sort of ominous. But the first advent of Jesus marked the beginning of the end of the world. As a matter of fact, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus marked the beginning of the end times. If someone says, we're in the, beginning, we're in the end times, and what they're referring to is like 2018 or 2025 or something like that, they're, in a sense, they're right, but in a sense, they're wrong. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus marked the beginning of the end times. Since Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, we have been in the end times. So that brings us to a, a very important idea for all of us. Since the first advent was important because it brought salvation into the world, shouldn't the first advent also be something that draws our minds to the finalizing of that work of salvation? to a time where Jesus returns and he finishes his plan of redemption once and for all. Now today, that's just what I'm going to attempt to do. So I've titled our sermon, The Second Advent, Prepared at All Times. I want us to turn our attention not only to what the first advent did in bringing salvation and rescue into the world, but to what it draws our attention to, and that is the second advent. That is the second coming of Jesus which will finalize God's plan, which will, which will perfect and end God's plan for salvation and will be with Him forever. I don't know about you, but when I think of the first advent, I think of uh, joy and hope 
and love and excitement and, and like newness. And it, it, it just brings a general, generally a good feeling in my mind. Is that the same feeling you get about the first advent, right? You think about Christmas, you think about the birth of Jesus, and it brings all the gushy feelings. But when I think about the second coming, it doesn't quite give me those same gushy feelings all the time. Growing up, honestly, as a Christian, as far as spiritual life, the second coming of Jesus was the thing that I feared the most in my life. The second coming of Jesus was the thing that I feared the most. I, I had dreams, multiple dreams. And I had thoughts, random thoughts during the day that one morning I was going to wake up and I was going to go downstairs and my family was going to be gone and all their clothes and their jewelry were just going to be sitting on the floor and me and Kirk Cameron would be left to try to see if we could get it right the second time. Now, as I've grown older, I, I've matured a little bit and, and, and I, I don't... I don't have these same fears, partially because my theology was corrected. And I don't want to get into the theo- a theological debate about the second coming, but I want you to know that I'm definitely willing to talk about it in a time where we can talk about it separately and, and not, and it's, it's not necessarily, this is not the sermon for it. But I definitely believe in a second coming of Christ. You need to understand that. But I think Revelation is filled with figurative language that can be misconstrued at times. For one instance, if you know anything about the end times, there's not enough blood in the world to be to the height of a horse's bridle. But many people believe that there will be this massive battle in Megiddo and uh, Armageddon, right? And that there will be enough bloodshed in that battle that it will get to the level of a horse's bridle, you know, the bit in their mouth or the, the part that leads the horse. Um, and uh, it just is not possible. So the Tim LaHaye's and the Jerry Jenkins, those guys who wrote Left Behinds, what they said is that there's also going to be a hailstorm at that time. This is extra biblical, but you know. There's going to be a hailstorm at that time, and it's going to dilute the blood, and the blood is going to raise up. Now, I think that's figurative language. I think that's figurative language for, for the amount of destruction that's going to come from God. There's also, I don't believe, now you have to understand this, I don't believe that there's going to be a battle of Armageddon. I don't believe that. What I think that means in the Bible is this, that the powers of the world and this present darkness will rise up against God's people. That's what I believe. At the end of days, the end of the end, that the powers of of darkness will be so great that Satan will be loosed and the powers will be so great that it will be the greatest spiritual battle of history. It'll feel like all hope is lost for Christianity. People will fall away. There will be great apostasy. People will fall away. And then the return of Christ. It'll feel like all hope is lost. It'll be a great battle. There will be great losses. I believe that there's some great figurative language that has been misconstrued. And those are just a few examples. So I don't believe in a, in a rapture like the Left Behind series says. I don't, I don't believe that, you know, your, your clothes and your underwear and your jewelry will all be left one day. Your shoes. And, and people will be looking around and be like, oh, oh no. What has happened? This this called a secret rapture. Uh, premillennial, pre-tribulation, dispensationalists will say it's a secret rapture. Here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. I believe that when Jesus Christ came, he died on the cross. He, paid, he per- lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He began the end times. I believe some of what we see in end times uh, of the, in the Bible that is related to end times was fulfilled in 70 A.D., with the destruction of the Jewish temple. And it was a judgment on the people, on God's people for rejecting Jesus. I believe some of that was already been fulfilled. I believe that right now that Satan is bound. That we are in a thousand year reign of Christ. Now this, there's been more than a thousand years since Jesus was here. But I don't, a thousand, the, the timelines in the Bible are almost always exclusively uh, figurative. There, there are some that are very literal, but they're almost always figurative to, to point to a large number or a great amount of time. A large number of people or a great amount of time. And so um, I believe that we're in the thousand years, that Satan is bound. Satan's been bound by God. He is not able, he, he still has power and he still has authority, but he's not able to freely uh, ruin the church. But we see this by the fact that God's church has continued to grow and thrive throughout history. Satan definitely has power, but he doesn't have power like 
uh, he would if he were completely free. I believe that we're in the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's a church age. I believe at one point Satan will be loosened. Satan will be set free. And there will be a great apostasy. There will be a great fall. If you think about what that looks like, it sort of feels like where we are now. I'm not trying to be John Hagee. I'm not trying to say, like, this is the end of the end. But it sort of feels like it. You see sort of a refining happening. God, the true faithful, are, are really being shown. But there's a great portion of the church who has fallen into apostasy. A great portion of the church who, is, who has fallen away and fallen for false teachers and, and teachers who, who are definitely not leading into biblical godliness. I believe that he'll be loosened and, and he'll, he'll cause many who are a part of the church to fall away. I believe that this loosening of Satan will be will follow by a great tribulation for the church, which all of us, if we are still alive, will experience. It's predetermined and it's necessary and it must happen for the return of Christ. And then I believe that Jesus will return just like that. No secret coming. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates there will be a secret coming of Jesus. That he will return. As a matter of fact, it'll be loud. That day the trumpets will blast. And people will know. People will know that he has returned. Especially believers. Because the hope of believers is not just a hope of salvation for the here and now. But a forward salvation. And because we are looking towards Jesus, we will know and we will see it. And there will be no confusion in our mind. And then he will judge the living and the dead. And as a part of that judgment, if you're a video game player, he will hit reset button. He will hit the reset button on the earth. And he will begin a new heaven and a new earth where God's people will be with him and enjoy him forever. Part of the reason why I don't fear eternity anymore is because God has revealed his plan in Scripture And to me, it's as plain as day. To me, it's as plain as day. That God has a plan since the beginning of time. That if I follow Jesus in faith, that I'm a part of that plan. And because I'm on the side of the judge, as opposed to being against the judge, I have nothing to fear. At the end times, I will be judged for what I do on this earth. But because God looks at me Through the lens of Jesus instead of through the lens of Bryce, I have nothing to fear. Also, as a a child, I feared, not feared eternity, but I thought I didn't really look forward to eternity because I wondered how I could love heaven. All that the angels did was sing, after all, sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I thought, even though I think God is holy and I think that's great, I thought, man, that's going to be boring. That is going to be boring. As an adult, what I've learned is, listen, and this is vastly important, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. The second Adam is Jesus. Where the first Adam had fellowship with God, unlimited nourishment, no sin, no pain, no death, and he gave it all up because of pride and discontentment. The second Adam had all of this in his heavenly home, and he gave it up, albeit temporarily, temporarily, for humility and love. The second Adam then has worked to and will one day finally restore creation to the way the Father originally intended it to be. A new heaven and a new earth, perfect forevermore. And when I think of the work of the second Adam, here's what I think of. I don't think of the angels singing holy, 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 because we're not angels. When you die, you don't turn into an angel. When you die, you don't fly high. So don't say that. Don't say that. Don't be too critical of people who do, who do say that because they don't have a grasp on what theology is. Here's what I think of when I think of the perfect. I think of vintage church on steroids. That's what I think of. I think of God's people worshiping together, being of one mind, of one accord, loving each other, spending time with each other, worshiping the creator of the universe. But without sin, without death, without trial, without backbiting, without gossip, without sickness, in perfect health, in perfect unity. 
I think of my wife and my kids. I think of my family on steroids. I think of the best scenarios in my life, the best memories of I have of my family on steroids. And then I think, man, it's even greater than that. I think of friendships and relationships. I think of fatherhood and motherhood. I think of, of all of the possible best scenarios of, of godly relationships on this earth. And then I take it to the nth degree and I think, this is what eternity is going to be like. This is what being with God will be like. God will restore creation, a new heaven and a new earth. Life without sickness, pain, suffering, death. Restored fellowship with God. Living with Him and enjoying His presence in His courts forever. But doing it with each other. Being a part of God, and we can talk about some of the logistics of that later. I don't want to get into that because I think some people have a wrong view of that too. Being with each other. I want to talk more about that if, you, if I've left some questions in your mind. I'm sure there's some things we'll agree on, some things we'll disagree about. And I'm sure there's a different time for that. But for now, I just want to talk about the meantime. The meantime. What do we do between the first coming of God and the second coming of God? Knowing definitively that there will be a second coming of Jesus, how do we best fill our time and spend our energy in the time between the first and second coming? I have a few ideas that I want to give you today, and all three of them are based on three, um, three parables or three stories in Scripture. And that's the reason we didn't read the text before. Um, so what I want to do with you is I want to pray with you, and I want to give you those three ideas and read those three sections of Scripture. God, you are good. And you are faithful, and you were here physically. You lived, you died, you rose again. You've given us life, so now you're here with us in the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, and you, or you said to your disciples, greater things will be done through the Holy Spirit than even you did in your time on earth. And so we trust in that, we believe in that, and Lord, we hope in that. And Lord, we also sit here in great anticipation and in great hope for your second coming. We, we sit here in great anticipation and great hope that we will be with you forever, that we will worship you, but also that, that we will be in, in perfect unity with each other, that we will be doing it with the saints of God. The church, Lord, as an image of what eternity will be like, Lord, but so much better, so much more united, perfect. God, we give you our hopes, we give you our dreams, we surrender our life to you because you are worthy of all of that, and we trust you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want you to turn to Matthew 24 and 25. We're going to start at Matthew 25 today, uh, and we'll, it, we'll end with the verse that's up here. So Matthew 25, uh, we'll start in verse 1 in just a second. But I want you to see these three things about the time between the first and second coming, while we wait for the second advent. The first idea I want you to have is this. Going into this 2019, going into this new year, I want you to have this idea in your mind. While we wait for the second advent, we must count the cost and endure until the end. Some of these ideas will seem like you've heard them before and you have heard them before, but there are some different perspectives and some different ideas that I want you to hear and see, so don't check out on me today. Matthew 25. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, and we're going to, this is the story of the ten, the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here, in the uh, here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. 
And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and, to the, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. <coughs> Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I'm going to give you three different texts today, all concerning the second advent of Jesus. Uh, we, w- we could likely do multiple sermons on each of these texts, but I just want to take the theme from each of these texts, take the theme from each of these texts and bring out some points for living in between the two comings of Jesus. The first thing we must really understand is that we must count the cost of discipleship. The first parable that we read today discusses the virgins waiting for the bridegroom. The setting is a wedding feast where there were ten virgins who were a part of the wedding festivities. Something you need to know about the average wedding festival festivities is they were long. They, were, they started in the day and they went all the way through the night. And as a way of identifying as a part of the wedding feast so that people knew you weren't a wedding crasher or they knew you weren't trying to get into the wedding to take on the benefits of knowing the wedding party was that you had these lamps. And, you were, and that was a part of identification. That was one of the many ways of identification in the wedding feast. And we see that uh, there are ten virgins given an example here. Five who had been faithful, who brought a flask of oil, who had, who had been prepared for the long wedding feast, and five who did not count the cost. Five who did not prepare to endure. One author says this of the text. The overall and easily seen thrust of the parable is that Christ will return at an unknown hour and that his people must be ready. Being ready means, (coughs) excuse me, for preparing for whatever contingency arises in our lives and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus at all times while we eagerly await his coming. As seen in the fact that all of the virgins were sleeping when the call came indicates that it doesn't matter what you're doing when Christ returns. We may be working, eating, sleeping, or pursuing leisure activities. Whatever it is, we must be doing it in such a way that we don't have to make things right. Get more oil when he comes. Whatever we're doing, we must be doing it in such a way that we don't have to make things right. That was what the getting more oil was. When he comes, the major aspect of being able to count the cost is based on our understanding of the gospel and what we do with it. The five virgins who had the extra oil are those who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They counted the cost and prepared for the long haul. They made sure they were ready for the bridegroom to come quickly or to endure for a long time if they had to wait for the bridegroom. They did not just sneak in by the skin of their teeth. They received the gospel and they made the necessary steps to follow Jesus in faith for the long haul. The five virgins who did not take the extra oil are those who want the benefits of belonging but are not willing to count the cost of belonging. They are false believers who enjoy Christian community, who would call themselves spiritual, who might even be led or leaders in the church. They enjoy the benefits of Christian community but do not pass the test of endurance to meet the Savior. (coughs) And the test of endurance is simply this. Only those who belong to Christ will have enough oil in their lamps to make it until the end. Those who have the oil in their lamps at the end are those who have belonged to Christ. Friends, the road is long and it is hard. You will, make, you will not make more friends than enemies with the world along the way. Every time you preach Christ, or often when you preach Christ, you will be rejected unless you are talking about love of Christ. And if you're talking about the love, when you really start getting into what love means, then you'll be rejected again. The Christian life is full of victories and triumphs of different kinds. Progress like you wouldn't believe. But it is also filled with difficulties. It's filled with impossible situations. It's filled with sacrifice and frustration and sorrow. That is why our motivation must be sure. We will not endure to the end if our primary need is for others' approval. We will not endure to the end if our primary desire is to do to others if they have done for us. 
We will not endure to the end if we can only obey Jesus during the good times and we only have this trigger to pray earnestly in the bad. The most distinguishing characteristic of believer and a non-believer is simply this. Is Jesus enough? Is belonging to Jesus enough to motivate you to follow him in good times and bad? To put others first? To endure until the end? <clears throat> we must count the cost of discipleship. We must count the cost of discipleship. Because, because here's the truth. There will be multiple times in your life as a Christian where Jesus will have to be enough. Because nothing else will either be there or satisfy. I mean, it has to be that way all throughout your walk with Him. But there will be times where it is so blatantly true. Because nothing else will fulfill you. Nothing else will go right. Nothing else can be counted as good or great in your life. And at that point, Jesus has to be enough. So counting the cost of, of discipleship is simply this. Can I make it by just trusting in Jesus when everything else has fallen apart? Can I make it by simply trusting Jesus when everything else is not good? Everything else is bad in my life. We must count the cost and prepare for the long haul. Friends, counting the cost is knowing that Jesus is enough until Jesus returns. The second thing I want you to see is found in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And it's this idea. <clears throat> While we wait for the second advent, we must do well with the gifts we have been given. We must count the cost, but we must do well with the gifts we have been given. Look at Matthew 25, 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went out, uh, went out, went at once, excuse me, and traded Traded with them. My goodness, I'm having trouble reading today. And he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing his five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you have delivered me to two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He, he, who had also, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, did not scatter, where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more. Well, more will be given. And he who has an abundance. And he will have an abundance, excuse me. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a very important illustration. Very important parable. There are many points that could be made from this. Like I said, there's at least one whole sermon in this, maybe more. But I think the most, two most important are this. If you have been given much, humbly multiply more. If you have been given much, humbly multiply more. And if you've been given little, don't let fear prevent multiplication. If you've been given little, don't let fear prevent multiplication. If we've been given much, we must not settle, but pursue more. 
If God has given us physical abilities, if he has given us knowledge and understanding, if he has given us ability to communicate, we must not settle, but we must develop those gifts in our life. <coughs> I must be transparent with you, and I think I've told you this before, but um, it's sort of cathartic to tell you again, I guess. One of the, one of the most reoccurring sins in my life is choosing the easy way and also sort of skating through life on gifts and abilities. There is a satisfaction at times in my life with personal mediocrity because to some it looks like success. To some it doesn't look like I'm just sort of getting by. As we wait for the return of Christ, we should be content with the gifts that God has given us, but we should not be satisfied with their development. Paul said his goal was perfection in his Christian development. He knew that he wouldn't reach it this side of heaven, but for the sake of Jesus, he was going to try. As a Christian, we should be content with the gifts that God has given us. We shouldn't, if we don't have a gift, or if we don't have something, it doesn't show up as much as, as someone else we know and love, <clears throat> we shouldn't covet that gift. We shouldn't desire that gift over the gifts that God has given us. We should be content in the gifts that God has given us. But we should never be satisfied in their development. I remember how happy I was watching each of my children take their first steps. I remember thinking it was such a huge deal and a time for celebration. I was pleased that they walked, but I was not satisfied that they walked. If they, listen, here's my point. If they were still walking today like they first, like they first walked, I would think something was wrong. I would send them to therapy. I would, I would figure, I would try to figure out what was wrong with them. Because if if almost seven-year-old Ellie was still walking like however she was when she, a late walker, but however old she was when she first walked, I would be concerned that something was wrong with her. I was joyful and pleased that they walked, but I was not satisfied in the way that they walked. It's the same way with my little buddy. My little buddy is just now learning to run. We started him playing soccer when he was three years old, and his arms were pumping and his legs were pumping, but he wasn't moving much or quickly. He wasn't really going anywhere. I was pleased that he was out there, but I was not satisfied with the way that he ran. Just the other day I thought, now that's how a little boy is supposed to run. It's the same way with God. Hear me. He is easy to please but he is difficult to satisfy. He is pleased in you because you are in Christ. And that is enough. That's what gets you into eternity. That's what gets you into fellowship with him. But he is not satisfied with mediocrity and sanctification. His standard of growth for you, even though we have Jesus, is still perfection. His standard of growth in you is not that I have obtained, but I still press on towards the mark to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. His standard is just like the uh, standard that Paul had, that sanctification would not be measured and marked by mediocrity, but that it would be marked and measured by a pursuit of Christ, not for the sake of salvation, but because we have been saved by grace through faith. Friends, are, if you've been gifted by God, you should, not, you should be pleased in your gifts, but you should not be satisfied in their growth. To whom much is given, much is required, and every Christian will be judged by what he has done with the gifts that he has been given, the talents that he has been given, and the other blessings that he has been given from God. There's another aspect of this, and there are many people on every rung of the ladder. There was the servant with the five talents, the one with the two talents, and the one with the one. Oftentimes, we have the servant with the one who looks at the one with the five and the two, and he looks longingly at them. They had five talents. They had much more. You know, I've only got this one. You know, I'm afraid to use it. 
Because I could lose it. It's just so small. I could really mess this up. The servant with the one looks at the one with five or two and they look longingly like, I wish I could get there. If I only, if I only had the same advantages he had. If I only had what he had. I've had people say to me over time, you know, I wish I had the time that you did. No, you don't. I wish I had the knowledge that you have. I, I wish I could have gone to seminary like you. These people are crippled by a perceived inability. They don't realize that God has gifted each Christian equally in ability, even if there is an inequality in other gifts. Do you understand that? <clears throat> the master of the house gave each of his servants essentially the same thing. Even though the, not the, the denominations were different, he gave them essentially the same thing. He gave them something that wasn't theirs to own and something better than what they had before. And he expected improvement on every level. But the one who had less, he was crippled by fear. I have less. I, I must not be trusted as much. Or, or what if I make a mistake and, and mess this up, what the master has given me? Or this gift isn't really enough to make a difference, so I'll just hold it closely. How often are people who are called by God crippled by fear and perceived inability? Not one characteristic that is written of these three characters in this parable made the first servant better than the last. The only difference was what they did with whatever gift the master had given to them. Do you want to be like me? First of all, set your standard higher. You want to be like a theologian or a pastor that you admire, like a Christian that you admire? Stop sulking. Stop looking at what you don't have and look at what you have been given. And do with that. Open the Word. Pray and trust in Christ who will work in and through you. And do what He says. We, are, we have all been given the same ability even though our gifts at times seem like they have unequal proportions. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Friends, there is no difference between the greatest pastor and the lowliest layman except for what he does with the gifts and the ability that Christ has given him through Christ. This is vastly important. The only difference between you and Paul the Apostle is what you do with the, good, with the gifts you have been given no matter how little or no matter how big. In 2019, what will you do with the gifts that you have been given? Will you coast because you have been greatly gifted? Will you just coast through allowing, other, allowing the approval of others to be enough? Because that's what you're doing. When you take your gifts and you just coast, when I take my gifts and I just coast, what I'm saying is, is what people can't see won't hurt them, and what they approve, that approval that they're giving me for my gifts is enough. Instead of seeking the approval of Christ, instead of pursuing greater development and greater nourishment of those gifts, we say, well, vintage church thinks I'm okay. I must be okay. They think I'm doing a good job. I must be doing a good job. Let's just put it on autopilot for a little while. Friends, I want you to know one of the things that distinguish, another thing that distinguishes a Christian who is growing in Christ from a Christian who is not is an insatiable desire to do more and more with the gifts that God has given them. To develop more and more in deeper ways and in further ways the gifts that God has given them for the glory of God. To not be satisfied with the approval of man saying, well, look how gifted he is in this or look how gifted he is in prayer or, or preaching or teaching. But to always pursue 
higher calling. Will you shrink back this coming year because of a perceived inability? I've only been given one talent, and I know it's such a big deal. God is so huge, and He's such a great master, and he, there's so much hanging in the balance. But I've only, given, I've only been given such a small gift. I can't talk. I can't. I can't I'm, not, I'm not a good communicator. I'm not, I don't, I'm not a good thinker. You know, if I, if I use this gift, I'm going to mess things up. It would be better that I just keep this close to me instead of messing things up. I can never speak like Bryce. I, I'm not a deep thinker like my friends or, or, or like John Piper or, or, or those theologians that I listen to. I'm not a deep thinker like that. I can't speak. But if, if, I hold the, if I hold it here, it's safe. If I keep it in, it's safe. Will you be crippled by perceived inability? Will you coast through this next year? Or will you do whatever you do, whether it's eat or drink, to the glory of Christ? The last thing is this, and we'll close with this. While we wait for the second advent, we must spend more energy on an eternal cause. Look at chapter 24. Verse 36, we'll start th- verse 36 and read through 51. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on that day, on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house, listen, this is very key. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, when Christ returns, it will be quickly and it will be final. That is what I know. I don't know when the day is. No one does. No one does. And if someone tries to predict it, if someone spends most of their time theologically around them, avoid them. Avoid John Hagee. He is not a man who is pursuing the higher things. The gospel is the higher thing. The gospel lets us know we are ready for the return of Christ, not maps and charts. Our use, our pursuit Our disbursement of the gospel lets us know we're ready for the return of Christ. Not charting or looking at the Bible, looking for a secret code for when Jesus will return. So two things you can know will come quickly and it will come finally. We do not know the hour, we do not know the day, but we do know he will return for sure. So the question is, what will you be found doing at that time. We don't get to wait until the very end of our life. (coughs) Christianity is not like a retirement plan. We don't get to save up for when we're old. As a child and a teenager, we start off, if you're a Christian at that time, you start off with with a bold pursuit of the gospel. You start off with a bold pursuit of Jesus and as you come to a young adult, you begin to think that it's the next generation that will do the thinking theologically. The next generation that will will do the gospel pursuit. 
As you get into college, you shrink back a little bit, thinking that Christianity is for older people. You get a little bit older, and then you think it's for those who are smarter and, and wiser. And then you learn a little, and it's still not enough. Friends, you don't get to save and store, and then one day you will walk by faith. We are called to be ready at any hour, at any day, for the return of Christ. So we live in such a way that we're ready. This illustration might not hit with you, but it did with me as I was thinking about this. As my dad was teaching me to shoot a gun when I was younger, he taught me with his service revolver that he used to shoot uh, for the Memphis Police Department. It had six rounds, and you know a revolver, you put a bullet in each, uh, or piece, you know, you don't want to call it a bullet if you're being official, but anyway, you put ammo in each of the, of the, of the rounds of the chamber. And so you kind of open it, you fill it, you close it, and every cylinder, there's a shot. And so what I was finding out I was doing was, I was, when I was shooting, I wasn't really shooting properly. I was pulling. So what my dad did, he took all the, all the ammo out and he put one bullet, one round back in the chamber. And I didn't look down the chamber. I was just supposed to look through the sights and I was supposed to shoot. And as I pulled the trigger... I would pull, but nothing fired. And what he was doing was, he was showing me that even though there was a lot of action when I was shooting, I wasn't truly ready to shoot the gun. Because I was shooting in improper anticipation. I was shooting worried about the pull. Worried about what was going to happen. Worried about the pull. Instead of knowing what I was doing, instead of having a plan, instead of following through with the plan, I was shooting, worried about the unknown, worried about what was going to happen. We need to understand that we can't let those inabilities, those problems, those trials, those other aspects of our lives that would typically cause us to worry, typically cause us to to be frozen, maybe with fear, determine the works that we do. We need to be focused on the higher things. If today were the last day on this earth, who you are right now and who you are right now was to be plastered on the wall at Judgment Day. It was your final gift to your king. Would you be satisfied with what you saw and with what he saw? If today was your last day, if you died today or if the return of Christ was today, and who you are right now today was to be plastered on the wall in eternity as the last gift to your king, would you be satisfied with what you saw? What would it say? Would it say you were a Netflix connoisseur or a social media troll a video game expert, a great businessman, a good father or husband? What would yours say? And if that were the last gift you could give the Lord, would it be one that you would be proud to give Him for all eternity? Friends, there is no time for delay. There is no time to put off to tomorrow. No time for waiting or hoping for some extra strength or power or gift that you don't possess. No more time to be content with mediocrity. We should spend every day, this day and tomorrow, focusing on what we can be in Christ and pursuing that. So what can we do in 2019 to get us started on the right track? To the path to living every day with Christ in mind, take a plan of action. You're going to think all of this is dumb, but if I don't say it, someone will say, well, you don't talk about this enough. Take a plan of action for reading your Bible daily. Start small. Start by reading a verse or two, but read it daily. The more often you read it, the more likely you are, this is going to seem sort of nonsensical, but the more often you read it, the more likely you are not to put it down for long periods of time. 
take a plan of action for reading your Bible daily. If it's listening to it, if it's reading a verse, if it's reading a psalm, if it's reading a proverb, if it's reading something from the gospel, if it's reading the same thing over and over again. If you read John, if you read John and that's all you read, but you read it every day over and over again for the rest of the year, you will be growing in the Spirit as opposed to not reading at all or as opposed to missing time. Pray daily. Pray specifically for boldness and follow through in your faith. Pray for others to help you come along and or help to come along and help you in your faith. For you to be able to come along and help others in your faith. Read books that will uh, assist you in developing in your spiritual disciplines. That will help you to share your faith. If you want to know some of those, I'll let you know some of them. Justin asked me the other day, and I gave him several that I think are really life-changing books. And if I can give just a few books to read, these are the ones that I would read. Invest in something greater than yourself this year. Investing something greater than yourself this year that has eternal value. Volunteer. But volunteer with a purpose. Volunteer with a gospel in mind. Disciple someone. Disciple someone. Discipling is not some big, bad, scary thing. It's simply this. Caring enough to give of yourself so that others might have a future in Christ. Caring enough to give of yourself so that others might have a future in Christ. That's spending time in the Word with them. Spending time listening to their, to their thoughts and their angst and their problems and, their anxiety and, and all the other issues that they have in life and giving them eternal advice and eternal goodness. Growing in the Lord alongside them. Try to fulfill the second command of God this year in action and and not just in word. And then the most important thing, friends, as we pursue God and we pursue the gospel, keep doing these things relentlessly until they become a part of your daily life, until they become a part of your routine. So much as brushing your teeth is and so much as taking a shower is. And until Jesus returns... We wait patiently for the day with exceeding joy and exceeding anticipation. There's a statement of hope for Advent and hope after after Advent to the second coming that I want to close with today. We long for that day, statement of hope. We long for that day when Jesus will return as triumphant king, when the dead will be raised and all people will stand before his judgment. We face that day without fear, for the judge is our Savior. With the whole creation, we wait for the purifying fire of judgment. For then we will see the Lord face to face. He will heal our hearts. He will end our wars and make the crook straight. Then we will join in the new song to the Lamb without blemish, who made us, who made us a kingdom and priest. God will be all in all. Righteousness and peace will flourish. Everything will be made new. And every eye shall see at last that our world belongs to God. Hallelujah. Come, Lord Jesus. Pray with me today. God, you are good and you are holy. And if that's all we know about you, it's enough to pursue you. It's enough to follow you. It's enough to thrive in this walk. Help us to thrive. Help us to follow you. Help us to pursue you, Lord. Help us to not be crippled by the fear of using the small gifts that you've given us. Help us also not be satisfied with mediocrity, Lord. Help us to be content in the gifts you've given us, but never satisfied. Always pursuing development. Always pursuing higher Uh, attainment of those gifts, Lord, for your sake, for your glory, not in order to reach salvation, but because we have already reached salvation through the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we love you. We praise you. Be with us today and throughout this year. Help us to be shining examples and a light to this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.